0: One,
1: two, three, go. Hello, and welcome to IS Off the Page, I'm your host, Morgan Kaplan, and I'm the executive editor of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. In today's episode of Off the Page, we'll be discussing and debating the optimistic and controversial position that the world may be steadily marching towards permanent peace. We begin our conversation by talking about Michael Mousseau's summer 2019 international security article, The End of War, how a robust marketplace and liberal hegemony are leading to perpetual world peace. To help us with this discussion, we have the author Dr. Michael Mousseau with us, as well as guest Dr. Graham Allison, who is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University. Michael Mousseau is a professor in the School of Politics, Security, and International Affairs at the University of Central Florida. So Michael, you've written an incredibly interesting article for us about the end of war and how a robust marketplace and liberal hegemony are leading to perpetual world peace. Uh, Certainly a controversial take, but it's a very interesting one. So why don't you tell us all a little bit about your argument?
0: So world peace is emerging because, uh, well, you can think of this in three steps. Um, first of all, the power of the marketplace nations is overwhelming because they're very stable um, political economic systems and they have very strong economies. They also reliably want global order. And so they tend to win their wars against the bully nations. And that's the first part. The second um, source of, of the change that's happening that I see over 500 year period is that Um, Because the the um, marketplace nations favor self-determination, there's an incentive for small nations with weak marketplace economies like in Africa and Latin America. They have an incentive to ally with the marketplace nations because the marketplace nations are offering them, look, we want you to have self-determination. Here's some financial aid. Uh, and if, as long as you follow the rules, we'll take care of you. So these countries agree to follow the rules. And so this enhances the power and influence um, of this um, market hegemony. Though some countries resist, Cuba, Venezuela, and particularly, as I argue in the article, the larger a non-market country is, the more likely it is to resist, like Russia today. And then the third step is uh, the market hegemony. And this is key. So these nations join the international financial organizations, they follow the rules, they have their external security taken care of by the United States. So as a consequence, the conditions has never been as viable for transitions to marketplace economy in all of history. 1945, 1947 changed everything. Since then, countries have been able to transition faster to marketplace economy than ever before um, because of the global conditions. So there's a trend that's emerging. And if this trend does not stop, eventually every country will have a marketplace economy. So will peace will look like you can think of the relations among the EU nations, those in the western half of it, the traditional ones. Yeah, there are differences. um, There are disagreements. But no one even considers the idea that anything would go to violence. They don't even think about that occurring among themselves. And that's what will happen. This will be worldwide. Tell me
1: a little bit more about how your argument differs from other liberal arguments um, about Peace emerging, or about how economics lead to cooperation among states. You know, where 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 is the kind of niche that you're you're fitting yourself into? Sure,
0: great question. Well, uh, there's there's the argument is not you can call it idealist, because I say nations fight for their interests. I just simply identify what those interests are and how they vary between marketplace nations and others. They want different things. There's also nothing about democracy, you know, the liberal idea about democracy in this argument that, uh, in fact, democracy is an outcome of marketplace economy. And we know historically now the evidence is overwhelming, though there are some folks that reject the evidence, but half of the democracies do not have marketplace economies. And statistically, these countries are are not in a peace. The democratic peace is only the marketplace nations. It's not a cost of war argument. Um, A lot of folks said, this is Norman Angel's cost of war. I don't say anything about cost of war. It's about what countries will fight for. I don't say that war has gotten more expensive because they have these kinds of economies. And it is certainly nothing to do with the liberal laissez-faire argument. A lot of people get confused about that. This is related with trade interdependence. Um, In fact, there's nothing about trade interdependence here, nor interstate images. Uh, But turning to uh, laissez-faire, I argue that a marketplace emerges when the state intervenes and makes it happen. There's no assumption Here, that their markets are natural.
1: How much does this type of world peace that you're talking about, you know, would you argue that it does reflect an existing reality on the ground? I mean, you can imagine that quick readers of this article or hearing your argument are thinking, wait a second, world peace. we see a tremendous amount of conflict going on right now both at an interstate and especially at an intrastate level. So it, what does um, peace actually look like in your argument you know, and how much does it allow for actual conflict?
0: Well, um, to, to, to be clear, these states fight – um, they will fight for their interest just like all states will fight for their interest but what I have modeled what I is that marketplace nations have interest in global law and order so they're a natural agreement against um, nations typically large ones like Russia today that have no interest in the order and in fact they have interest in disorder because it creates opportunities for them and it's this is well grounded historically you can um, I believe this is the source of the United States soft power these countries just agree and the doctrine, which was America's statement to the world, if everyone follows the rules, um, you will be protected. Uh, and in fact, there's never been, a, historically, there hasn't been a single battle related death um, among these nations. If you, if you just look historically, marketplace nations have um, never had insurgency. They don't have domestic terror groups that originate from their domestic economies that have support from from the people. They've never had civil wars. They're very much uh, in peace at home. And so what would world peace look like would be very much the way we see relations today among the marketplace nations like South Korea, Japan, Canada, the United States, um, Western Europe which means that there are differences of, differences of opinion. However, no one thinks about anything going to the level of conflict, and there certainly is no fear among them. No one would fear the other because the other is getting stronger. On the contrary, just look what these countries do. They get together and try to coordinate, and everyone wants the other's economy to grow. So there is no fear um, of the other side, what i argue what happens is fear only happens if a country is growing and it's already acting aggressively and these countries do not act aggressively and so they do not fear each other
1: what what does it mean for a country to become you know completely market oriented and thus in this position where there's no longer uh, an incentive to engage in conflict. I believe in the paper, you call them uh, contractual states versus those without strong uh, market economies, what you call status states. What is the definition you're using? Where do you draw the line? How do you know when a state has crossed that threshold where it's become uh, market-oriented or contractual, as you say?
0: Um, great question. Um, it's I don't go um, intuitive. like. I pick these certain Western countries that are the obvious ones. Uh, Rather, I go go strictly on data, and all the details are on uh, the Harvard Dataverse. I'll just say here quickly, as you go back in time, you can use immigration rates because a country that has a strong contractualist marketplace economy is going to attract people because jobs are available at good rates. That's why I can say the northern states of the United States, where most people went to, um, had marketplace economy as far back as – 1776. Same thing with Australia, New Zealand, Canada once they became independent after 1920. Now, um, traditional economies don't attract people and typically um, the money in these kinds of economies are in gold or in land or in buried cash or informal flows. Whereas in marketplace economies, um, we have commodification of risk, you'll see high levels of private investments, you'll see high levels of people using life insurance. And from 1960, where there's cross-national life insurance data, it's pretty clear because most countries don't have any life insurance sector, and then you have a small number with very high levels of life insurance per capita consumption, and the latter identify as, okay, Those are the countries that are the marketplace ones. I don't identify France as market-intensive, having a contractualist economy until 1975. And I identify other countries like Botswana, Chile, and Malaysia as having um, contractualist economies today.
1: Great. Well, Michael, I have only one more question for you. All right. Are you ready? You go off the page. Let's now bring in Graham Allison, who is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard University and has substantial experience in government. This includes his position as Assistant Secretary of Defense under President Clinton and Special Advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Reagan. Dr. Allison has been a member of the Secretary of Defense's Advisory Board for every secretary from Weinberger to Mattis. Welcome, Graham Allison. Pleasure to be
2: here and happy to be part of the conversation.
1: Great. Well, so you've had a chance to, to read Michael Mousseau's article, and first we th- thought we'd start by hearing some of your reactions.
2: So I would first congratulate Michael on being so ambitious. I think it's an extremely ambitious piece. Thank you. And obviously, uh, if we could find uh, ingredients that make wars less likely, or even in his claim, uh, end war, that would be a fantastic thing. So uh, first, I applaud the ambition, but secondly, when I first saw the title, I thought, "What?" Uh, <laughs> and then when I looked at the piece, I said, "Fantastic! Uh, uh, literally fantastic!" And I thought maybe it was a parody <laughs> that uh, that he had uh, decoded the pervading prevailing formula in the blob, which is to Take a term from ordinary language, create an idiosyncratic definition of the term uh, by creating this uh, contractual estate, and then, uh, after some back and forth, pull a rabbit out of the hat and say, and therefore, there were no wars. Uh, and uh, so, I actually looked at the article twice because at first I thought maybe this is a brilliant case of. Basically, at the end, he's going to say, and if you believe this, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, but then I I read it again, and I think uh, he's serious about the claims. Uh, and in that case, I have comments about it. But All I'd right. say the first first and biggest is that uh, I think nowhere, unless I've unless – it, it's certainly not in this article – is – a contractual estate defined. There's a discussion of it, but without a definition, and nowhere are there criteria identified that would have let me tell which is a contractual estate and which is not. And therefore, I think the the risk in the chart that he offers that creates the conclusion is one that in political science or security studies is is uh, uh, call basically uh, cherry-picking your cases to fit your conclusion. So, to be specific, the claim that, uh, and at first I thought it was the claim that contractual states don't go to war, but then I noticed that since he credits the U.S. as being a contractual state, and I believe that there was a war in 2003 when the U.S. attacked Saddam, uh, and there was another war in Afghanistan and uh, there's uh, what some people would describe as a war in Libya so then the next iteration is no 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 it' have to be contractual states don't attract don't attack other contractualist states So then I asked myself well uh, if the description of contractualists uh, again not defined but in the description in the article it says they're basically, uh, market economies with laws that have contracts and produce positive some benefits to the parties. So, if I take that description and ask about Germany uh, with Hitler and Britain or France or the US and World War II, uh, Hitler uh, was elected. Through a, a parliamentary process, there was a vote uh, and a parliament, and it was selected. And Germany was certainly a market economy, and were contracts among parties with the principal way people did exchanges, and they did those to their mutual benefit. And actually, there's a lot of trade between Germany and the other states. So it didn't didn't seem to me to, to, to wash, and it seemed almost like the same problem that emerged earlier in the Democratic Peace Hypothesis, which was another article that was a famous article in IS 25 years ago, that democracies don't fight other democracies. And I think the second and third iterations of that argument uh, were that, well, but democratizing countries often become quite aggressive uh, and aggressive against both democratic and non-democratic countries. And then, well, fully democratic countries don't fight each other, to which answer is, if I start with my dependent variable, no war, and only agree that the states are democratic if they don't get engaged in a war, then I'm picking on my dependent variable with enough fuzziness about my independent variable that my conclusion really follows from my presumption.
1: So Graham's given uh, a lot of food for thought off the bat, so we might Great. as well. Michael, uh, what do you think about some of Graham's comments?
0: Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I wasn't sure if Graham wanted to continue on with his other no, points. No, or, I'd say um, that's, but I, I'm that's happy, enough
2: to get started. Yeah, it, was a, it was
0: a big fight. Okay. Was, that was a
2: rather long, that was a long <laughs> mouthful to start with. I apologize for going oh, on that's too long.
0: No, that's great. I really appreciate you thinking through um, um, the content of the article in this way. So let me try to um, address these. Uh, Probably it's best to start with um, the idea of what is a contractual estate. The the logic of the argument is when people in a society are normally using the marketplace. So you've got relatively full employment economy and people are regularly contracting with strangers in the marketplace. Their mentality is such that they benefit from strangers so they're used to strangers and they also benefit from a growing economy and the more strangers are making money the more money opportunity there is for themselves. So there becomes a preference for equity and law so people are free to contract with and, and make more money and also for economic growth. and so the preference turns to the state to demand that the state pursue economic growth, and protect individual freedom. And those are the two core values that I say emerge. And there are a number of other factors that come from that in terms of the foreign policy of states and also the people want um, democracy as the best way to constrain the state towards pursuing those values. But the question y- you've raised is then how do you identify, um, and it's a very important question, how do you identify which countries um, um, fit the bill for where this, has happen- where this is happening? And so, uh, Essentially, you can look at it as in societies that don't have strong market economies, people as a habit, they put their money that they have, they put it in land. In gold and minerals or cash buried underneath their mattresses or in their backyard someplace because no, people don't trust each other. But where you have a strong marketplace habit, um, then individuals tend to invest in financial markets. So my indication, because financial markets are third-party enforced contracts, and if you got a and in a marketplace economy, people have to be able to trust the state enforcement of these contracts. So to make a long story short, I gauge third-party enforced contracts. Um, for when there's um, a certain cut point in terms of the median level um of the societies and that um, and I don't want to bore with the technical details here, but it's when that cut point is reached, um, and that cut point was um, identified after I made the prediction. I made the prediction of the peace among the contractualist nations before the data were available. And the data didn't, didn't become available um, that are widespread enough for the study of international relations until 2003. I made the initial prediction in in 2000, and then I set out the data using the median. This is an international. Security in two thousand nine, using the median of life insurance contracting, and and that's when I discovered that among these countries there was not even a single fatal militarized conflict, not one death.
2: So, so my 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 suggestion, Michael, for this, because I see your chart on page uh, whatever the table one with the states' status and contractualist economies. Uh, I know the way that market economies are identified by the IMF and the World Bank and by economists in general. They don't correspond to this. Uh, I don't have here some criteria that says, you mentioned two things, employment, the level of employment, that normally, if the when the level of employment unemployment in the U.S. rose to 9%, you didn't drop it out of the... Uh, contractualistic economies, so employment is not the criterion. Growth, well, uh, at what level and when was somebody growing less than that? Uh, and then you could say, well, okay, how about uh, financial markets and whether and how they're functioning? There's been financial markets in the Netherlands and in Britain and in the U.S. for a long, long time in Canada. Uh, so financial markets at what? Either some percentage of GDP, or the number of people participating, or for insurance again, the number of people right. who are insured. So I, I hear this the the I mean you you're the the paper tell more about the mechanism than by than about the criteria. Sure. And the the criteria I need to identify as explicitly as possible so that I can figure out uh, whether uh. The fact that Iraq failed to meet the test in 2003, mm-hmm. and if it had met that test in 2003, that George Bush would not have attacked it, I don't believe that for a second. So then you would have had a war between the U.S. and Iraq.
1: I mean, that's a it's a useful question, right? I mean, it's an interesting counterfactual is, you know, if Iraq was a contractual by your definition, Michael, would... Would we not have gotten the Iraq war? Would we not have gotten the type of contention and and conflict we'd seen? And And this, of course, can lead to a conversation about China down the road as well.
0: Right, right. Um, absolutely. Uh, if if I, what I'm arguing is that if Iraq was contractual, it wouldn't have behaved the way it behaved. So what I argue is that nations that have contractualist economies, strong marketplace economies, they have foreign poli- their interests in foreign policy are in a global order where every country has equal access to each other's markets, and everyone has security, so everyone can just go ahead and make money. And countries that do not have these economies have the more traditional economies where people tend to be in groups and collective groups, and essentially in these political economies, people compete over the state or oh, um, rents of the state. And part of the rents of the state is to force the state's foreign policy to be imperial and to bully neighbors as a way of trying to get tribute from neighbors.
2: But, but now, wait, what wait, I, Michael, sorry, what's, what's wrong with that argument is that in this case, the state that was the contractualist economy attacked which you said is therefore going to be all focused on producing more well-being for the citizens within the state, that the U.S. Mm -hmm. in 2003. Mm -hmm. So you agree the U.S. in 2003 is contractualist, yes? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And you say Iraq is not contractualist in 2003, but the U.S. attacked Iraq. Iraq did not attack the U.S. Iraq had nothing to do with the U.S. So had it been a contractual state or not a contractual state, I don't see how that would be interesting or relevant.
0: Well, uh, the, the way it would be relevant is because I don't argue that contractual states are particularly peaceful. contractual states um, are, act the same way in foreign policy as they do at home. Contractual states have strong state capacity at home, and they arrest people who violate the law. In foreign policy, contractualist states will arrest or attack countries that violate the global order. The United States, as the largest contractualist power, has Um, the burden of having to enforce the global order, and it decided to make this decision in 1947. And the Truman Doctrine explicitly um, sets it out. So countries that act in a way that they're violating the global order, especially if they're doing so that's going to harm the global economy, Um, are going to be attacked by the United States. I can predict that Um, um, if attacking that country is the only way to protect the global economy.
2: Um, And that's relevant for Iran No, look at Iraq. Again, Mm -hmm. you're just avoiding the case. In Iraq, Iraq was not violating anything. Iraq was just being its same beastly self. Gaddafi wasn't challenging the international order when we and the French and the British attacked them uh, to destroy the regime. So, here you have the country that you said is upholding the international order and not attacking people, as the attacker against the regime, which you say, because it's not contractual, is therefore more risk, more war prone, which is not
1: sure. Well, this yeah, and this gets at the question of what is the interaction between contractual states and status seeking states? Is it kind of like Graham said that it's like the democratic peace, liberal democratic countries? Can be incredibly aggressive internationally as long as they're faced up against a non-liberal uh, liberal state is it, so is the argument that contractual states towards each other are going to be peaceful much in the same way as the democratic peace makes that similar type of argument or is it that you know because of the internal composition of contractual states that they don't pursue type of aggressive behavior abroad because it's not kind of built into their society
0: Right. So they, um, it's not a matter of, um, of 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 aggression or aversion to war. What happens is these states, these contractualist states, I argue, simply agree. So as a consequence, they are in a natural alliance. And what you have is a lot of small countries. Let's say in Latin America, benefit. Even though they don't have contractualist economy, they benefit from this, what I call market hegemony, because what are the rules of the market hegemony? Everyone's supposed to stop hitting each other, bullying each other, and follow the basic rules of equal access to trade. And so most small countries, the dictatorships or the elected dictatorships um, go along with that, and they get economic aid uh, as part of the incentive. A small number, Cuba, Iran, Iraq, and others, uh, will tend to um, still act like um, some of the big powers do that want to challenge the hegemony, like China under Mao or Russia under under Putin, and so you ha- you have this larger liberal hegemony that exists. Um, um, countries. Um, That like Iraq, uh, at the moment in that particular case of 2003, there's idiosyncrasies of the case. But in general, Iraq had been challenging its neighbors and had um, challenged the global order with Kuwait and had continued to threaten Kuwait. And so that's my argument is the liberal hegemony. The American's job is to enforce the global order for continuing economic growth for this hegemony. So these countries will fight and they will fight for their economic interests as they see it in terms of equal access to global markets. It's fair play for everyone, nobody bullying.
2: I don't know of any single person who's ever argued that the reason why the U.S. attacked Iraq in 2003 was to maintain international order, to maintain the liberal order, because it was violating the rules of, of trade uh, or otherwise. And indeed, if you remember, just to take the factual in the case, both... Uh, uh, Chirac in France and Schroeder in Germany, two contractualist market liberal economies, as you put it, uh, thought this was crazy. And that's what they said to Bush. Sure, sure. Uh, And I I thought it was crazy. Uh, And I think in retrospect, it was crazy. And if you said, did it succeed in maintaining international order or promoting trade in the region or any of the objectives that you're mentioning, I don't think you can make that argument.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I'm not making that argument. I also thought the attack on Iraq um, was was crazy. So my argument is more of general patterns of warfare. Every single every individual case has its own idiosyncrasies. In this case, there are a lot of there's domestic factors in the United States and so forth. So my general point to make on this case is it still fits the general pattern that um, Iraq was a state that was um, bullying its neighbors and it was a threat behaving in a way that was a threat to the global economy. And I, my theory predicts that whenever that happens, as in Iran today, there's a high probability of conflict when the United States will attack. Well, so speaking of high probabilities of conflict, we could have the conversation
1: about what does it even mean for China to be a contractual society. Can we really expect that this by itself will mean the United States and China will, will simply not go to a
2: war? So let me say a couple of things and then see what Michael has to say. So first, start with the uh, understanding of what is a thucydidean and rivalry. What we're seeing today in the relationship between the US and China is a meteoric rising China, threatening to displace a colossal ruling US. That's uh, the best, as Henry Kissinger said, the best lens for looking through the noise and news to the underlying dynamics of what's going on. And I agree with that strongly. That's the argument of my book. Uh, So that's the diagnosis of the problem. In such a rivalry, there's a substantial risk of war that comes not from either the rising of ruling power, concluding that war is a good idea or are attacking the other, but rather from some third party's provocation. Think 1914. So Archduke is assassinated. Seems to nothing to do with anything. Doesn't make the front page in New York or London. But in five weeks, all of Europe is caught up in a war. So basically... In a rivalry in particular, <clears throat> you get an extreme form of what security studies call the, the security dilemma, in which everything you're doing looks to me like you're trying to displace me, and everything I'm doing looks like I'm trying to hold you down. And therefore, when a third-party action occurs, one or the other of us feel obliged to react. That triggers a spiral that drags us somewhere where we don't want to go. So I would say that's the reality of China today and the China-U.S. relationship. My book argues that while in 12 of 16 cases like that that we've seen in the last 500 years, there was war. So war is certainly possible. War is more likely than people would normally appreciate, but war is not inevitable because even on the record, four of the 16 cases, there was no war. So to your question... I mean, any description of China that doesn't notice that it's principally a capitalist economy that works on the basis of contracts among people that are enforced by companies and by workers, by people who buy, who invest money in stocks, and people who buy insurance increasingly. Now, it's a party-led state, and there's a very heavy role for the state in the, and the party in the, in the economy. But if China were more market oriented, or if it adopts or adapts to the current trade conflicts and becomes a more open economy, is that substantially going to affect the rivalry between a rising China and a ruling US? I'd say at the margins, one of 20 dimensions, but it'll still be the case my God, China has a larger economy than the U.S., but Americans think U.S. means number one. China would maybe be the leader in 5G with Huawei. We don't like that. We think we should be the leader in every technology. China could actually have a Navy that can operate in the South China Sea. We think we're the arbiters in the South China Sea. China could coerce Taiwan. We think that we should be able to arbitrate arbitrate that. So I think the Rivalry between the U.S. and China is a fact of life that that demonstrates a pattern that Thucydides had this big insight into. That what happens when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power and describes a syndrome? And I don't think, but I'd be interested if Michael has a different take, whether the contractualist element of this, I don't see the contractualist component significantly impacting U.S. behavior. And I don't see the contractuals component to whatever extent I try to infer from the discussion that he offers, but without a definition or criteria uh, would impact the Chinese side of it.
0: Great. Uh, Lots of really great points. Uh, Really appreciated. So let me try to um, address them. So I I agree any power that is rising, other powers are going to be cautious about it. My argument is that rivalry is not inevitable. Size alone does not matter. That nations will go on other factors to, to estimate threat of another nation, even if it's a rising power. If that rising power is behaving in a way that's not threatening, um, then there's not necessarily going to be a security um, dilemma um, emerge. So um, 12 of 16 cases, there was war, but most of these are back in time where there were no contractualist economies. Um, One of these cases is the United States and the United Kingdom. And I think that relationship of 100 years ago is where there was not war, this is is the one that fits um, the United States-China relations today best, and here's why: Britain's economy. A uh, 100 plus years ago was in the transition between the old group collectivist traditional style economy to the modern mass market economy. Now, again, when I say mar- market economy, I mean marketplace economy, not free markets. The United States um, wasn't even a big trader for most of its history. So it's not about free markets. It's a matter of people using the marketplace. And um, England and Great Britain did not emerge as, as with that kind of economy until really after World War 1. So about 110 years ago, the United Kingdom was in transition and transition economies are hard to predict, but there is a pattern. Um, they tend to be not the traditional empire that is like Putin's Russia today, which is you just want to expand and dominate and create chaos because you don't agree with the global system. Instead, mercantilist economies aren't seeking to dominate. They're seeking profits just like contractualist economies. However, these transition economies seek that profit not in a fair way. They prefer to have an unfair privilege. And so the British Empire one around controlling markets, creating on-tariff tar- um, advantages. And that's exactly what China is doing today. China is in a transition economy. Its um, market side has grown rapidly. But there are um, huge um, parts of its economy that are not accounted for in GDP, for instance. The economists that create GDP data look at contracts. So if there are parts of an economy that are not accounted for by GDP data, then that indicates there's still an informal economy going on in China, so China is a transition economy and it's um, and so it's a mercantilist imperial uh, South Korea was similar thirty years ago Japan was similar fifty years ago they seek privileged advantages. And what I caution is that we do not interpret, and I'm not saying you do, but others have, um, mercantilist quests with power quests. Um, Great Britain was not seeking global power in the 1890s. It was seeking mercantilist advantages. And my suggestion is we have a huge advantage with the Chinese leadership because they are trying to convert China into a marketplace economy just like we have in canada and in holland and in the united states if they succeed this would be a huge transformation of the nation of the world and so the alliance of marketplace nations those of us in canada united states and wherever we we should recognize that what the chinese leadership is doing is a gift to us without any effort on our part they are being transformed and if the current trends continue and of course we cannot predict the trends, but if the trends of the past 10 years continues for some indefinite for some period, they will have an economy like Holland, and they will behave as Holland will, just like Britain went from being a mercantilist imperial power to signing the Atlantic Charter and joining the um, the American hegemony of marketplace nations after World okay, War II. I, yeah, um, think I, I, about think,
2: it. I think that's a so. delusional account of history. So, basically, uh, Great Britain will uh, went into World War I, uh, came out a debtor, and they'd been a great creditor. It made its accommodation with the U.S. because it had a even larger uh, threat posed to it by Germany, more approximately. Uh, in the period after uh, World War I, it uh, had an interim period in which it struggled, and you had World War II and a decolonialization process that basically was not most of its choosing that was part of the fact of the loss of its power internationally, plus the fact that after the war, the U.S. was not enthusiastic about supporting either its empire or the or the French empire, as we saw in into China. So I think that uh, the that story or that reading of the U.K. history as a try to uh, for clue to the Chinese uh, story I think is not not correct. I think in the Chinese uh, aspiration they would like to have a set of economic relations with their with everybody they trade with and with their neighbors not unlike uh, the relationship that Japan had with its co-prosperity era a- area and uh, if you have a party-led authoritarian system the uh, opportunity to use my economic strength coercively in geoeconomics is is considerable. So if you look at and talk to or listen to people in Southeast Asia about how their economic relationship with China has changed as China has become more market economy and bigger and stronger, they are squeezed more frequently and taken advantage of more often. So with China's power has grown just the opposite of improved behavior in its relationships with the other parties to being somewhat more assertive.
0: I would I would contrast Chinese behavior with Russian behavior, for instance. Yes, the Chinese are pretty aggressive economically, but note that they're they're not challenging the marketplace global order led by the United States. I would argue is that they see their own interest in this order. As opposed to Russia, for instance, which does not see an interest in this order and wants to challenge it and is engaging in bullying behavior, China uh, is pushing the boundaries certainly, but it is not explicitly—it's not engaging in bullying behavior of nations. Uh, it certainly is – For the, there's a few cases, but it's certainly far less than it was under Mao, for instance, which I, what was a period when I think China um, was a bullying nation and um, um, like Russia um, um, today.
2: Well, I, I was in Singapore last week, and the uh, prime minister of Singapore is a former Kennedy School student. The person who's likely to be his successor is a former Kennedy School student. Two-thirds of the cabinet are Kennedy School graduates. And not a single one of them would agree with that description of China.
1: All right. Well, unfortunately, that's going to have to be the last point in the debate because we're running out of time. But Graham, we have a bit of a tradition here on the show, which is to ask our guests if they could provide any sort of uh, advice for junior scholars, junior policymakers, practitioners as they go forward in their careers. What advice would you offer?
2: Part of what I like about Michael's effort is he's taking a big swing at a big issue. Thank you. And, so the fact that I don't think it was successful doesn't t- take away from the fact that it's, you're reaching a uh, high. And I think that's very valuable. The second thing is I'm very, I, I believe applied history is a methodology that we can use much more successfully in security studies. Great.
1: Well, thank you so much, Graham and Michael, for joining us on the show today. And thank you all for listening in. Until next time on Off the Page.
0: Off the Page is
1: a production of International Security, a quarterly journal edited and sponsored by the Belfer Center at Harvard Kennedy School and published by the MIT Press. Our program is produced and edited by Morgan Kaplan, the executive editor of International Security. The associate producer is me, Rex Horner. Technical direction and post-production by Ben Craig. And special thanks to Halan Kaplan for composing our theme music. Upcoming episodes and additional material for Off the Page can be found online at belfercenter.org slash offthepage. All articles from the journal can be read at mitpressjournals.org
2: is.